Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we, we read in your word one final difficult lament. And Lord, as we wrestle with its purpose and how we as your people should respond to it, we see the Lord Jesus. We see the one who lived, died, and rose again that we might not taste the bitterness of death. Rather, that we have an eager expectation of life forever with you. Lord, we praise you for all that you have done through Christ. And we pray that we might cling to him all the days of our lives. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Lamentations has been a, a, a weighty text. Um, and this chapter 5 carries with it just as much sorrow as the previous four. There, there's no relief from the pain. And I don't know about all of you, but to me, that's a little bit surprising. I thought that perhaps here at the end of, of all things, we might have a, at least a, a pivot toward a future hope or, or, or a sprinkling of, of, of hope um, present. I mean, we see this commonly throughout biblical narratives. I mean, we could consider stories like David, and there's lots to consider with David. But if you remember, as he sinned with Bathsheba, a son was born. And, and Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, listen, the son is going to die because of your sin. And the son became sick, and David was in anguish, as all the parents in the room no doubt would be, right? You know, here he sees his son, who is sick and getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and he is in anguish. He, he lays on the ground, he doesn't eat, he doesn't you know, bathe, nothing. He just lays on the ground and prays and cries out to the Lord. His reaction at the sickness of his son is so severe that, that when his son does die, his servants don't want to go tell him. They, they think he's going he's to do something bad. He's going to harm himself. He's going to, whatever. But, and he knew, knew what was going on um, because they're whispering wherever they were. And, and he says, you know, is the child dead? And they say yes. And if we were to kind of overlay this story of, of David losing his child with lamentations and, and the pain and sorrow of loss that, that is run throughout the book, they would be pretty much in lockstep. But then David does something odd, right? He, he gets up, he cleans himself, he worships the Lord, and he sits down to eat. And, and the reversal is so drastic that, that the, the servants say, what gives? And he said, look, while the child was alive, there was a chance that perhaps the Lord would, would spare him and he might live. And, and basically, so I prayed and I fasted. But now that the child is gone, I'm not calling him to me, rather I am looking forward to the day when I go to him, right? There's a certain future hope that David expressed. 
I mean, we see that not just in, with David, but we see that throughout the Old Testament. And yet here in Lamentations 5, we don't get that. Here in, in Lamentations 5, I mean, even there, we look at the end of chapter 4 and we recognize that, that in the word to the Edomites, you know, it says that the wrath of God is, is expended. So we would be forgiven if we expected a pivot, a turn, a, a focus on future hope. But it doesn't seem like that is the case. It seems that it's just as full of, of the difficulty as the previous four chapters. You know, as we think about that, we, we do recognize that in chapter 3, there were you know, the, these brief words, these few precious words of the Lord's loving kindness that indeed never fails. But we also see the way in which that's been swallowed up by the overwhelming disaster that has befallen God's people. How do we respond? How, how does Jeremiah respond to this? Here in chapter 5, he's, he's making a plea to the Lord. From beginning to end, this, this prayer is, is a lament. It's a call out to the Lord for help. And we see that he does have a hope that the Lord would restore him. Or not him, but the, the nation. And as we think about this, we have an advantage. We, we are on this side of the cross. And we see the way in which the Lord and His providential care works through the pain and suffering that Jeremiah experienced, the pain and suffering that the people of God experienced in the exile. And we see the way in which the Lord brings them to fruition, not in the people as they continued to suffer, but in the Lord Jesus who suffers on our behalf. And so as we reflect on lamentations, we can, we can look to the Lord Jesus who suffered for us. And as we cling to Him, we have a confidence that our present difficulties, whether they reflect lamentations or not, are momentary in light. That our present difficulties help build proven character as we look to the Lord's return. That our present difficulties cast in sharp relief our expectation for eternal joy and wonder in the presence of our Savior. So as we look at Lamentations, as we see the way that, that Jeremiah continues to suffer and the people continue to suffer, we look to Christ we hold fast to Christ. We hold to Christ as our, our only hope, and we can rejoice. Now, as we, as we re remember kind of the circumstances of Lamentations, we, we recognize that this took place at the fall of Jerusalem, where the Lord has removed His providential care, His, his hands, uh, his, his protecting hands from the people, and He has used Babylon the kind of the, the big empire of the day, and some smaller surrounding nations to come and destroy Jerusalem and to carry its people into exile. Now, for Jeremiah, the author, this had to be particularly miserable. Why? Because he had just spent the last decades warning that this was coming. 
day in, day out, each and every year, punished, tormented, uh, abused for it, but he faithfully taught that the, the day of the Lord's wrath is coming and you best repent. And the people refused to listen. The people refused to turn to the Lord. Instead, they, they sought to, to, to look like the nations. And so here, in the destruction of, of the city, in, in the carrying off of the people into exile or the killing of the people outright, you see that Jeremiah's word has come to fruition. The, the Lord has, has given the people over to their sinful desires. He's given them over to, to want to be ruled by the other nations. Now, to be clear, it's miserable, right? The people are suffering, they're hurt, they're wounded, they're dying. The Lord has not spared them, and even more so, He doesn't seem to be responding to their pleas. He doesn't seem to be responding to, to the, their, their prayers for, for deliverance. You know, we, we, I just said a moment ago, as we think about David, there was a point at which David turned and he recognized that his hope was in the Lord and that he would see his son again. We see in Lamentations that for the majority of the people, they don't have that hope in that way. You know, we, we can look at the Psalms, and, and apart from Psalm 88, they all express that sort of hope, that pivot. Um, that, you know, but here, we just don't see it. What do we see? We see that the, the chapter begins with a request, a request for the Lord to look, for the Lord to see. Now, I mean, we have to state the obvious, or what should be obvious, it's not as though the Lord doesn't know what's going on, right? It's not as though the Lord uh, just has his eyes shut or is busy over here, and, and Jeremiah just needs to say, Lord, um, little help. And, and, and then the Lord's, oh, yeah, right, and he's going to see what's going on. That's not the kind of looking that we, we understand here. We understand that the Lord sees all things, knows all things, brings all things about. What we see, then, is that when Jeremiah is calling on the Lord to look upon the people... He's saying, look upon the people favorably, right? It, this is the same uh, as the, the second part of the benediction, right? Where we, we say, may the Lord's face shine upon you, look upon you, be gracious to you. That's what Jeremiah is hoping for. But what follows is a description of the suffering they're, 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 un, they're, they're undergoing. And as we think about this suffering... We then see at the end, we see you know, the, the question, why do you forget us forever? We see the question, you know, um, why do you forsake us for so long? It appears as though, as Jeremiah is calling out to the Lord, that he's not answering. He's not hearing. In, in the words of Deuteronomy, we would say that the, that the sky is bronze, Right? And, and we recognize that, that uh, as we pray to the Lord, you know, it's, a, it's a spiritual reality, right? The, but we sometimes use physical language to describe it. So if we're thinking about that, we could think about the Lord above in the heavens, and there's air from me to Him, and, and as I pray, you know, prayers go to Him. But the picture of the sky being bronze is a picture of solidity, 
So as we scream and rant and rave and wail and call upon the Lord to, to, to save, the, the experience we see is that the prayers hit the bronze and bounce back, that they don't get to Him. As we then think about it, it's as though we look to the Lord for light, for comfort, but we see nothing but darkness. We receive nothing but darkness. That, that's what we, we see a picture of in Lamentations 5. We also see that, that the markers of society are gone. What do I mean by that? I mean that as we, as we think about the markers of any society, but if we think about particularly in Jerusalem, the things that would have given some significance and stability. Things like a king. He's gone. He's been carted off into exile. In fact, one of the last kings had his eyes gouged out and carted off into exile. Like, it's not gone well. There's no king in any official way. There's no temple. It's destroyed. So as we, as we look at Jerusalem, as we look upon the hill, and we, we think, okay, I'm going to go and worship the Lord, it's not there. That doesn't mean that individuals can't worship the Lord, but we, we see the markers of the culture, the markers of the nation, the things that made Judah Judah are gone. Neighbors are gone, or at least the neighbors you want are gone. They've been carried off into exile. The neighbors that you maybe want have probably been killed. And so what is left are, are those that, that were of the lowest in society. And that's who remains. And it's chaos. It's, it's, it's destruction and loss of life. As we think about the chaos that, that would have ensued, um, we, we need to think a little bit about the, the nature of chapter 5 as is different than the other four. Uh, Lamentations is five chapters, and all of the, the chapters have 22 verses. And somebody's going to say, no, 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 chapter 3 has 66. But you notice that the 66 in chapter 3 are real short. It, it's kind of like it has 22 verses. And the reason of, of that is that each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, at least for the first four chapters. And it's this highly ordered cycle of destruction. It's as though the lamenter says again and again and again and again, from A to Z, or from Aleph to Tav, the wrath of God has been poured out and the, 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 the culture is annihilated. But chapter 5 doesn't have that pattern. And there are two um, possibilities for why that might be. One of them is hypothetical. It's to say that everything's better now. But clearly it's not. I think the reason that there's no order is because there's no order in society. The Lord has, has, has poured out His wrath upon the people the land has been destroyed. The nation has lost its identity. There's chaos around. And so chapter 5, mirroring the chaos of the land, has no structure, has no acrostic features. We also see that chapter 5 has a focus on the next generation. 
I mean, all of it describes the, the misery that the people are experiencing, but, but chapter 5 also talks about the next generation. If you look with me at verse 2, you see that it, it speaks of an inheritance. Specifically, it says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Verse 3 speaks about orphans, right? Um, you know, the fathers have sinned, and um, I apologize, we've become orphans without a father. And then verse 7 describes why that is. It says that the fathers have sinned and are no more, but the next generation is bearing the consequence. It's, it's, a, it's an understanding that this chaos that, that they're experiencing is going to continue. It's going to, to affect the next generation. And into this, Jeremiah offers a plea. He offers a plea that the Lord would look and restore to renew the people, to renew the land to its former days. But he also sees in this that as he speaks of the generations and the suffering that's going on, that this isn't going to be quick. And the result of that is in verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read them again. It says this, Our joy, or the joy of our hearts has ceased. I'm going to read that again. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. The people are without hope. They're weary. They're broken. And Jeremiah makes this closing plea that the Lord would renew them as in the days of old. Now we might consider what that would have meant, right? What would life have looked like if, if, if days are renewed as of old? Well, there would have been a temple. Uh, there would have been uh, good and right temple worship. There would have been a wall around the city to protect it. Homes would be restored. The land might live at peace, right? Uh, people wouldn't have to risk their lives to go find food, as it says in verse 9, right? Where they, they, they need bread, and so they run out of the city, but there are enemies in the wilderness. So every time they need food and they have to go out, they risk their life. Well, if the Lord renews them as in older days... That's fine. They don't have to. They have their own food. People wouldn't be forced to pay for water or firewood. Now, if we look at, if this is what Jeremiah is looking for, we have to ask, does it happen? And the uncomfortable truth is that it certainly does not happen in Jeremiah's lifetime. And not just Jeremiah. Most everybody who is alive, who, who would consider themselves Israelite or, or Judahite, do not live to see any of this sort of restoration. They die in exile, or they die under, under foreign occupation. There is a restoration in time, 
Right? If we're reading through the Old Testament, we see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and there we see that the wall is rebuilt, right? the city is reestablished, homes are repaired, temple worship resumes, right? the, the people you know, worship in the temple in a good and right way. But even as we think about that, what do we recognize? The oldest of the group, the people who, who had lived all through the exile, instead of rejoicing, they wept. Not tears of joy, tears of sorrow, because they understood that the new temple wasn't nearly as nice as the old one. And as far as the, the city and the walls and the, and the, the housing, well, it, it sort of remained under control of another leader. You know, Cyrus was the one who allowed the people to return. He kind of paid for, for some of their efforts, but he was still very much in authority over them. And the land kind of was passed from one empire to the next through the centuries. And it might have brief periods of relative autonomy. But by the time Jesus is, is born, we see that the Romans are in control. And as we move a generation removed from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see that the Romans destroyed the city. The temple, the buildings all raised. The temple never to be rebuilt. So if, if what Jeremiah was looking for on the horizon was this restoration to, to former days, he would have been disappointed. Now, we, we recognize that, that individually, right, people were still able to worship the Lord. This has been true throughout the history of God's people, but, but rather we re recognize that the markers of society that Israel and Judah would have enjoyed are gone. The nation from the time of the exile on never attained the former glory of the days of David or any of the great kings. There was never any priestly fidelity like the days of Moses or Aaron. Right? And, and apart from a few Old Testament prophets right at the, the end of the, the Old Testament... We see that the land is never blessed with the prophetic ministry as it had been in the days of Isaiah and others. Instead of that sort of a restoration, instead of just a return to former glory, better days, we see that something far better came. In time, the Lord Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. By faith in Christ, we understand that sin is removed, righteousness is secured, and peace with God is attained, perfectly attained. Now, we understand that Christ continues to reign, and He does so in heaven, and we but this is important, we recognize that He doesn't have a steward ruling in His place on earth. We recognize that Jesus is King, and no other. And as, as we then think about this, we, we recognize that Jesus is greater than Moses, He's greater than David, He's greater than all the prophets, and His kingdom is also greater than all that came before it. As we sit where Jeremiah sat, and we call upon the Lord to restore us, we need to recognize that it's not to former glory... It's not as though we are looking to be returned to the Garden of Eden. Rather, because of the Lord Jesus, we recognize that we have something far greater. A permanent city, an eternal glory. 
eternity spent with the Lord Jesus. We also know that until He returns or calls us home, He sustains us by His Spirit. Now, we're not um, in the midst of the fall of Jerusalem. Um, I have bread at home. I bought some at the store yesterday. There are some shortages. I do recognize the signs that say temporary shortages everywhere. But we understand that that's a substantive difference than having to run to the neighboring city and risking our life for our food. Um, we, we, We all recognize that our lives are generally not at risk of Babylonian hordes ready to take us. But we also recognize that there is distress and distressing news in our day. Just a casual observance of the daily news would show that the church's influence has waned in our culture. You know, in the 1600s, the the most highly educated person in the little town, wherever you lived, was probably the pastor. He was also probably held in highest esteem. As an aside, what that also usually meant is that the pastor not only functioned as the pastor, but because he was the most educated, he also functioned as the physic. That was what you called a doctor in the 1600s, which means he probably was burying you as fast as he was marrying you, uh, because nothing in my theological education would make me remotely competent to practice medicine. Uh, but that's what, that's what happened, right? We understand that in the 1600s, we understand that through most of the, the, the uh, late medieval, early modern period, pastors, the church, the voice of the church had a significant place within the community. That's not the case now. And it's easy to understand why. The church is to preach Christ and Him crucified, Say that again. The church is to preach Christ and Him crucified. And we know that that's foolishness to the Greeks. We know that it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Or to put it another way, you know, as Paul said, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? So we should not be amazed when we, we encounter people and a culture that, that are not wanting to follow the Lord. Instead, we should be downright flabbergasted when someone does want to follow the Lord. Why? Because apart from the Lord, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They have to be made alive by God's Spirit to follow Him. We see as we look at our society, this gulf between the church and a nation, as it seeks to, to, to go its own way, is getting wider. Sadly, many churches are not particularly fussed about remaining faithful to the Lord. And they gladly swim across the gulf and join the wider culture. Others seek to, to maintain some um, measure of orthodoxy. But as they seek to appeal to the culture, they do so in unwise ways, and they get caught up in this gulf between the two. As a result, they they lose credibility with the culture, but they have no meaningful faith. They're, they're, They're neither hot nor cold. We must not follow either course. We must continue to be a church that preaches the gospel faithfully in season and out. We must be a people who seek to follow the Lord's lead wherever He leads us without reservation. 
We need to provide a faithful and winsome witness to those around us. It cannot be at the expense of the truth. Now, even as I say that, some of you might be thinking, well, of course, we would never sacrifice the truth for popularity. But please make no mistake. Understand that in the wider church within the United States, (laughs) we're full up of churches, of people who made the same statement. And yet, little by little, continuously have given or are giving themselves over to a wayward culture. It's not unlike the frog, right, in the pot. Now, I don't, I'm, don't do this. I don't advocate doing this. But we understand, right, that if you have a hot pot and you put a frog in it, he jumps right out. But if you have a cool pot and you put the frog in it and you slowly heat up the pot, he dies because he doesn't know enough to jump out, right? Little by little, he gets acclimatized. We see that that is, that is the temptation of our culture each and every day. The test of our time, the question of our time, in many ways, is the question, is the Bible sufficient for you? Is this Bible sufficient for us? And how we respond to that, how we respond to the whispering voice, did God really say, will determine whether we remain faithful to the Lord. Now, I I say all of this to say here at the close of Lamentations that I'm going to presume for a moment to speak about the future. I do not do so as a prophet, so don't get out your stoning stones, right? I, I do so as someone who is just examining the trajectory of the society in which we live as it seeks to deny the Lord, as it seeks to deny truth, as it seeks to, to follow pleasure and the pursuit of autonomy no matter what. As, as we look at the trajectory of the, the culture and, and what it, it means for the people of God to remain faithful to the Lord, we need to recognize that our culture is not that dissimilar from Judah. We should then not be surprised if the Lord does not bring about the disintegration of this culture in the same way that he brought about the disintegration of that. And if he does so, the church will be swept up in it. Now, we need to recognize that in Christ we are secure, but as our culture continues to reject the Lord, if the Lord does work in such a way there will be plenty of misery around. Instead, we pray that the Spirit of God would work to stem that trajectory, that He would bring a nation back to Himself. Now, recognize that even if that does not happen, even if the the culture just continues to go and and is, is left to its own devices and there is no great disintegration... We're going to see that gulf between the church and and the society continue to widen. And if we remain faithful, again, there's going to be plenty of misery for us. How do we respond? We respond looking at Lamentations 5 and the suffering and, 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 and sinful 
consequences we see here. And we make the same plea to the Lord. Lord, restore us to you that we may be restored. But we do so in the knowledge that Christ has done just that. And so, as the culture continues to drift, or as it disintegrates, we cling to the Lord. In all of the circumstances of life, whether plenty or lacking, whether safety or danger, whether peace or disquiet, we remember the Lord Jesus, who had no reason to suffer, but did so for us who understood the agony of what was before him, but perfectly yielded his will to the Father, who has secured our way to the throne of grace, where we may receive help, mercy, grace in time of need. So as we think of the Lord's life, death, and resurrection, we cling to him. As we remember his ongoing work at the right hand of the Father, we eagerly look for his return. And as we eagerly await His return, we need to provide a faithful witness to the world around us. And we need to rejoice when men and women repent and follow the Lord. Amen.